Greetings, friends and brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God. I want to talk about the Sardis church era, some things about its beginnings, some of its leaders, doctrines. In the book of Revelation, first chapter, Jesus says he's in the midst of seven churches and starts off talking about uh, or listing uh, Ephesus, followed by Smyrna, then Pergamos, then Thyatira, then Sardis, then Philadelphia, then Laodicea. So Sardis is fifth. As far as when the Sardis church era began, probably toward the end of the 16th century or the beginning of the 17th century, so late 1500s, uh, early 1600s, it became the most predominant church era at the time. Now Jesus had the Apostle John write some things about it. You may take your Bibles and uh, go over to uh, Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to read various verses that Jesus had inspired. Chapter 3, starting with verse 1, New King James Version of the Bible. And the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a name that you are alive. They use the name Church of God, by the way. But you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain for they that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, including pay sufficient attention to prophecy, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, it should be mentioned that because Jesus in Matthew 16, 18 said and emphasized that the grave would not prevail against the true church, that the true church never actually died out, even though various names associated with it changed. And you can see some hints of that in Revelation 2 and 3. Anyway, it was toward the end of the time of Thyatira's dominance that the Sardis church began to emerge. Now, the late uh, evangelist John O'Gwyn wrote that by the end of the 1500s, congregations that the world labeled as Sabbatarian Anabaptists had emerged from the remnants of the Waldenses, and they were growing in uh, Central Europe, Germany, and England. They were turned Sabbatarians because they taught and observed the seventh-day Sabbath. They were called Anabaptists when meant rebaptizers because they refused to accept as Christians those who had been sprinkled as babies. They taught that baptism was only for adults who came to believe the Bible, the gospel, and repented of their sins. Now the emergence of Sardis is approximately 1260 years after the Smyrnians fled, Church of God of Smyrna fled, church era, because of the edicts of the 4th century Roman emperors such as Constantine's uh, edict against heretics in 331. And uh, the other possible time would be uh, Theodosius' edicts around 380 to 394. So depending on which of those you use, you've got an emergence of 1260 years, somewhere around 
1591 to uh, 1640 or 1654. And we'll get to some of that a little bit later. Now, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, the Anabaptists believed that salvation would be offered to all humankind. So I'd like to read something from the Catholic Encyclopedia, which says, The doctrine of apocatastasis, viewed as a belief in a universal salvation, is found among the Anabaptists. Now, Church of God does not teach universal salvation. We teach a universal offer of salvation. And that all have an opportunity for salvation, either in this age or the age to come. Now this particular book that I'm holding up, and any of the other books I'm holding up, are available free. There's no charge. You go to ccog.org, go to the literature tab under books and booklets, and they pop up. And if we don't ask you for your email address, there's, there's no cost, there's no obligation. And this talks about God's plan, for those called now and those who will be called later, because all will have an opportunity for salvation. Again, we do not teach universal salvation. We do teach you can only be saved through the name of Jesus, and that uh, all have an opportunity. As far as whether or not you're called now, we have a free booklet, Is God Calling You? Also available at the ccog.org website. Again, any of the books or booklets I hold up are available there. Anyway, so that was a belief that they had uh, an opportunity for salvation. Now I'd like to read something from the late uh, Worldwide Church of God evangelist, Dean Blackwell, who I believe I met, and I know I listened to some sermons from him when I was in Worldwide Church of God decades ago. And here's what he wrote in 1973. The first opponents of the doctrine of the Trinity were German Anabaptist. Now that's uh, a little misleading because uh, it's sort of being taken out of context because the first opponents of the Trinity were the uh, Church of God people, which is why Theodosius issued his edicts in 380 and later. Okay, But they were the opponents of the Trinity were included German Anabaptists. Another prevailing feature of their system was a belief in immediate or prophetic inspiration which if it did not proceed, supersede the written word, assimilated them to its author. So Dean Blackwell in that comment says, notice even there the test of the prophet was the written word of God. I mentioned that for different reasons, including the fact that in various Pentecostal type congregations, people will claim to be prophets and they'll say all kinds of stuff that are in conflict with the word of God. Dean Blackwell quoted another source, said the ancient Sabbath was retained and observed by a portion of the Anabaptists. And it's true that some of the Anabaptists uh, kept the Sabbath, particularly in uh, Moravia, which is in what we call the Czech Republic area. And uh, prophets were something that they sometimes recognized. Now, I want to read something else from the Catholic Encyclopedia. It says, Persons rejecting infant baptism are frequently mentioned in English history in the 16th century. We learn of their presence in the island through, through the persecutions they endured. As early as 1535, ten Anabaptists were put to death and persecution continued throughout that century. The victims mostly seemed to have been German and Dutch refugees. So this is actually how some of the truths got into the British Isles. As far as we can tell, looking at history, there were two times 
various aspects of the truth got in there. One was toward the beginning. Whether it was Joseph of Arimathea, which is what some legends say, Apostle Paul, or whatever, and or the Church of God in Asia Minor sent people up there in the uh, first or second century. Uh, there was some witness into the British Isles. How long that continued, it was difficult to tell, but remnants of what they taught were condemned around the uh, late 5th century uh, and even through 8th and 9th centuries because people over there were keeping Passover on the 14th, which is a Church of God doctrine, by the way, not a Roman Catholic or uh, Protestant doctrine. Uh, but anyway, there was another stage where people got some truth and it seemed to come from the Netherlands and from Germany into the British Isles. Uh, by the way, the article I just read said that the Anabaptists also, among them, they practice foot washing, which is something we in the Church of God do to today. Now I want to read something about a Sabbath-keeping group in England. And one reason I want to read this is because you can read people who are very dismissive of some of these things, particularly among uh, the uh, uh, well, former Church of God types as well as some of the uh, uh, Seventh-day Baptists. Anyway, it says, Secretary George Vane of the Milliard Church of London, who did considerable research for us, this is uh, for uh, uh, the Church of God Seventh-day uh, uh, Salem, year, uh, well actually it wasn't called Salem then, but anyway, 1926 in the libraries of London in the matter of church history. He wrote us under the date May 21, 1926 as follows. I find that the Pinners Hall Sabbatarian Church was established in Devonshire Square on March 1, 1574. Pinners Sabbatarian Church mentioned above was later organized by Francis Bainfield he mentions Church of God referring to his congregation. So Church of God was a term that was being used. Now, records show that there was controversy in England because of Sabbath keepers in 1584. And in 1600, it was reported that a Passover was being, was being celebrated in Exeter, England. Again, these are from critics of Church of God people. We don't know how long they were keeping Passover. Um, but... Presumably, any who came from, let's say, the Netherlands or uh, Germany who were Church of God people would have been doing that. Now, I'd like to read something from a Roman Catholic priest that was uh, published in 1618, and I'll probably refer to this again. So John Trasky and the other Puritans in their ceremonial and precise manner of observing the Sabbath are superstitious imitators of the Jews, our Savior's adversaries. Now, now that's, ins that's insane, okay? Jesus was a Jew, okay, and Jesus was not opposed to the biblical practices that the Jews did. Oh yes, Jesus objected to the traditions they added, but this was an odd thing for them to put in here, but this is what this Roman Catholic priest uh, wrote. His name was John Falconer. Falconer. Anyway, as far as John Trasky goes, he had a great zeal, but he had some issues with knowledge, kind of like Apollos you can read about in Acts 18. Uh, he may have been uh, Church of God, probably was. He claimed to get one or more dreams from God, by the way, and he was considered he considered himself to be some type of a prophet. Regarding him, uh, John O'Gwen, who I cited before, wrote John Trasky's 
was one of the first in England to publish a book dealing with the Sabbath. Writing around 1618, he was imprisoned for his efforts. Some credited him with raising up the Milliard Church in London. And that's the one I was referring to before. The oldest known Sabbath-keeping church still functioning and parent of later Sabbatarian churches in America. In 1661, John James, another Church of God minister in the London area, was arrested for preaching the truth. Now, John Trasky practiced the laying on of hands, which is one of the doctrines of the Church of God. You can read about this in Hebrews uh, uh, 6. And he was uh, keeping uh, at least Passover and probably Days of Leavened Bread, uh, according to also that priest Faulkner. Now, I'm going to have to read this part a little oddly because they use old English letters, like they use an I for a J, and etc., and a, an F for an S. It says, this is from the Catholic priest, John Trasky, by reading in Eusebius's uh, church history, he shows how St. Polycarp and other holy bishops of Asia observed observe the Jews' time of keeping he wrote Easter, it means Passover. And he and his disciples are lately therein resolved to imitate them. So this priest is complaining that there was a Church of God leader who says, look, Polycarp and other uh, people you Greco-Roman Catholics consider to be saints kept Passover on the 14th, and that's what we in the Church of God do. And that's, by the way, what we in the continuing Church of God do. Going back to the priest's writing, says John Trask seems falsely to suppose uh, that the Sabbath, the seventh day of rest, and bodily labor, was from the beginning of man's creation. And uh, you look at God resting in uh, Genesis chapter two. Christians are expressly forbidden to play the Jews and be idle on the Sabbath, instead to observe or prefer our Lord's day before it. So that's what this priest is saying. And having read various Roman Catholic writings about Sabbath and Sunday, I will make it clear, they absolutely teach that it's not from the Bible. Uh, I go into that in some depth in another book we have, Beliefs of the Original Catholic Church. If you're Roman Catholic, like I was raised, or uh, Greek Orthodox, or even Protestants, you might be shocked to learn what the beliefs of the original Catholic Church were. Because they're not like the Greco-Roman churches today. There's many, many significant differences. Anyway, getting back to this Catholic writing. Again, we're talking about people during the Sardis Church era. John Trasky, the 14th of the March moon, wherein the Jews were commanded by God to celebrate their Passover. Upon this late reading of Eusebius' church history, Polycrates' epistle directed to Victor, Bishop of Rome, concerning the Asian custom of keeping Easter with the Jews. And by the way, they did not use the term Easter, it was Passover. He will arrogantly presume to call Victor, that holy bishop and martyr famously mentioned in uh, ancient history, as a, as a proud prelate. Okay, so John Trasky was saying, look, Victor, Bishop of Rome, was not doing what the Bible says. He, should have been, he was being arrogant, shouldn't have done that. And then now it says that the priest writes that John Trasky observes the feast of Azimes. Uh, and that's the term that the Catholics use in the Catholic Encyclopedia for the Days of Living Bread. So uh, he's saying that John Trask and his people kept 
Not only the Passover, but the Days of Love and Bread, which is something we need to continue to be Church of God do. Anyway, he says, the ancient bishop of Ephesus, talking about Polycrates, in a preposterous zeal of observing the yearly memory of our Savior's resurrection, as St. Polycarp and the other great saints had done before him in, the, in those parts of Asia, wrote very earnestly in defense of the court of Decimum custom. So he said, Polycrates wrote explaining why you're supposed to keep Passover on the 14th. Whose authority has, as it should seem, much moved John Trasky. So what happened is Trasky went back and he looked at some of the early writings from people, the Roman Catholics, the Greek Orthodox call early church fathers, said, wait a second. The faithful kept Passover on the 14th and they kept the Days of Love and Bread and we should do so as well. So it, we see this going on in uh, the, the Sardis era. Now, later in the Sardis era, most were not keeping the Days of Love and Bread. I read the passage from Revelation chapter 3 that talked about that Sardis was going to lose truth. Anyway, continuing here, this priest writes, John Trasky and his disciples hold the legal differences of meats mentioned in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 10. Uh, to be so moral itself. Okay, that's what it says. So, in other words, they were not eating biblically unclean meats either. And we in the continuing Church of God uh, go along with that as well. If you read not only the Bible, but how early Christians understood the teachings of the Bible and the teachings of the apostles, you'll find that they have doctrines and beliefs that are like those of us in the continuing Church of God. Now, of course, you might be watching this, you might be Protestant and think you get your doctrine from the Bible. I challenge you to see if you're really doing that. And I had somebody recently say to me, oh, I don't have to read this book because I just believe the Bible. I said, yeah, but you're Protestant. And if you're Protestant, you're accepting doctrines that are not in the Bible. You may think you're getting them from the Bible. And again, I would challenge anyone who considers themselves Protestant and considers Protestantism to be the true church to read this documented book. This book quotes multiple scriptures, mostly from Protestant translations, and quotes Protestant scholars repeatedly and demonstrates the Protestant faith was not the original faith that Christians kept. It simply was not. Uh, People can choose to believe the truth or believe the lie. If you have a love of the truth, I strongly urge you to read this. On the other hand, Greco-Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics, think that their faith was the original faith and that they claim they teach the faith of the fathers and this type of thing. But again, I challenge them to read this free book, Beliefs of the Original Catholic Church, because this documents from people they consider saints what the early original doctrines of the church were. And again, they're not being practiced by the majority of those who claim to be uh, uh, Catholic of any kind. Anyway, again, both these books are free at the ccog.org website. Anyway, so similar to what I've done in this book, John Trasky was condemned by a Roman Catholic priest for citing sources they accept. Sadly, uh, John Trasky at least partially apostatized in 1620 after being arrested in prison, but his wife Dorothy did not. Now, I've got some information on the uh, uh, old uh, 
Villiard Church from the Seventh-day Baptist. It says the origin of this church goes back to the labor of John James from 1661. But as I've read to you before, others did research and said, no, it went back into the late 1500s. They claim that uh, President Dowling dates it back to 1580. Then it talks about in 1616 or 17, John Trasky came to London from Salisbury, held revival meetings. One of his disciples named Hamlet Jackson was a means of bringing Trask and many, if not all, the congregation to the observance of the Seventh-day Sabbath around 1617. Elder William Jones says this Traskite congregation was the origin of the Milliard Church. All the church records prior to 1673 were destroyed in a fire in 1790. But again, uh, actually Andrew Duggar had uh, a man back in uh, 1926 go back and found something that points to a, a late 1500s date for the start. Then they list uh, uh, the arrangements of pastoral services. They say John Trasky was from 1617 to 1619. Then they have a gap. Then they have Dr. Peter Chamberlain from 1653. They're not too sure for when. Then John James until 1661. William Sellers from 1670 to 1678. Uh, Henry Hornsby from 1678 to 1711. Then John Malden from 1712 to 1715. Now the old worldwide church of God said that the evidence is that this Milliard congregation dates back from 1607 or even 1580s, and that's where I was trying to say. Now, from a guy by the name of Ball, his book called Seventh-day Men, he said Trasky was not a Baptist. Now this is important, and I'll get to that later, because the Seventh-day Baptists claim him, and we say he was not a Seventh-day Baptist. Anyway, the information on the Milliard Church in the UK is not as clear as we'd like it to have. Because we don't have the name of whoever was uh, uh, immediately before uh, John Trasky. Although I've, I've been working on that, and I may go into that uh, in another sermon or message. Anyway, Ball writes that Traskite Sabbatarians existed in London during the 1630s, uh, most probability in continuity to the practice of their founder from 1617. So that even though Trasky was gone, so they kept going doing the right things, the same things. So I came up with a, a list from uh, 1617 to 1619, I've got John Trasky. Then from 1620 to 1652, probably John Peck and maybe some others. Then from 1652 to 1654, I've got Peter Chamberlain. From 1654 to 17, 1661, I have James John. Again, these are the, the, the leaders in our succession. From 1661 to 1678, William Soller, 1678 to 1711, William, uh, Henry Soresby. Then it gets a little tricky. From 1712 to 1715, it may have been John Malden, and I did a sermon about him from 1708 book that he wrote. Problem is he lost some truth, so I'm not sure if he was fully Church of God or not. It's also possible at the same time there was a guy by the name of uh, Thomas Lucas who was a well, he was alive, and he could have been the true successor. But if not, he would have become the successor over in the UK, probably from around 1716 to 1743. Anyway, the uh, Brian Ball, who wrote the book Seventh-day Men, wrote that from the late 1640s, with a new religious liberty and freedom of expression and practice, the Seventh-day came out in the open in a way previously unknown in England. 
And that's important because there's a, a period of 1260 years in the wilderness. And if it began with the uh, pronouncement of Theodosius in either uh, 380 or 381, then that would have ended in 1640-1641. Anyway, I mentioned uh, uh, John Peck as a leader. He was a lawyer and uh, he was a friend of uh, John Trasky when he was a young lawyer. Uh, Peck was a Sabbatarian and according to Ball, the observances of Saturday Sabbath, dietary laws, and even Passover, the Puritan drift toward Biblicism towards a Judeo-centric millenarianism. So, so they, those are doctrines that we, the continuing Church of God, still hold. The dietary law is keeping Passover, the Islam bread, of course, the Sabbath, and believing in a coming millennial reign of Christ. As far as Dr. Chamberlain goes, he was a famous obstetrician. He was in Holland around uh, uh, 1635 to 1642. And many in Amsterdam, at least, or in the Netherlands, were keeping the Sabbath at this time. It seems like Dutch influence was related to Sabbath keeping in places like uh, East Anglia and England no later than 1645. And again, I think it happened in the 1500s as well. Interestingly, now, Chamberlain was influenced by a non-Sabbatarian millennial person, so he believed in the millennium. His name was John Brain. He felt that the 1260 years of the wilderness of Revelation 12.6 would end between 1660 and 1666, and he had contact with Sabbatarians. Now, even though uh, Dr. Chamberlain lived until... uh, uh, 1683, he lost the leadership mantle. And let me read something about this. Chamberlain's failure to remain a leader of the Seventh-day Men in large measure derived from his inability to devote himself wholeheartedly to a single project. In other words, he could, wouldn't seek first the kingdom of God and he got other things getting away. Anyway, in mid or late 1640s, Peter Chamberlain left an independent group that seems to have been associated with uh, some who kept uh, Church of God doctrines. And he was a, a, a Sabbatarian. And I've got some letters that Chamberlain wrote. And uh, I'm not going to read all of the stuff, but basically he, he's writing to uh, somebody over in the, one of the Anglican bishops, a guy by the name of Sandcroft. As I understand, I've been uh, uh, introduced to you, basically, this is in really old English, so I'm going to try to make it more understandable. As a Jew, by a combination of gossip and various ones who've called me these things, says, but uh, uh, to be a Jew, as the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, is a crown and honor to any Christian. But as they intend it, uh, it's opposition to the name and faith of Jesus. And I abhor them. So he says, look, I do keep. I do believe Jesus uh, is the Savior. I abhor those who claiming I'm a Jew who doesn't believe. That doesn't make any sense. And they are uh, slandering and prejudicing me for what I do. And by the way, the same thing happens to people in the uh, Church of God today. Uh, I've read uh, very false and many very negative things about myself and other uh, church, continuing Church of God leaders and other leaders, other churches. 
uh, online, and you can read all kinds of lies. And if you prefer to believe the lies, that's your choice. But the Bible, the Apostle Paul says, prove all things, hold fast, which is good. And people who are believing and loving lies are people that are warned against in the last book of the Bible. And the Apostle Paul said to prove all things, which is why I challenge those who consider themselves Protestant or who consider themselves Greco uh, uh, Roman Catholic to prove all things. As far as the Church of God goes, I think a lot of people have not proven all things either because we've got people scattered all over. I think a lot of people, no matter what type of professing Christian faith they have, do not understand the truth about church history, which I'm holding up this book, as far as which is the most faithful church, uh, best represents the Philadelphia remnant. This would be a challenge for anybody uh, who thinks the Church of God is right and is not yet convinced the continuing Church of God is right would be to read this short booklet. Uh, we not only have the doctrines, we also have uh, the signs that the church is supposed to have in the end times. Uh, so anyway, Chamberlain wrote some more things. He says, uh, In Abraham, so all the seeds of the earth be blessed. I've heard by some most worthy keep the Sabbath. And he says this is a good thing. It's foretold by uh, uh, the prophet uh, Daniel that the uh, there's a little horn that's going to change times in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. And so be careful to not follow that. I've been conversant with several in your nation in Italy, Germany, and the, and the low countries. The low countries would be considered the Netherlands and uh, Luxembourg and Belgium. Uh, I think myself more engaged to salute you in my own native country. And he says he's invited to the house of a rabbi after the Sabbath. He met with four rabbis to come together and uh, talk to them. And says, uh, I told them they must think that the Christian, what the Christian, what they saw as a Christian religion was in Rome. So he said, look, he said, I met with the Jews. He says, you Jews think that uh, the Christian religion is what uh, the Greco-Romans practice. He says, that's simply not the case. Now I'm going down here to pick up a book. In case you are Jewish, or even if you're not, we have a book called Proof Jesus is the Messiah. And I wanted to point this out, because chapter 3 specifically is addressed toward the Jews. Now chapter uh, 2, I think, first, first or second chapter, goes through hundreds of Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, that prove Jesus is the Messiah, which, of course, we would hope the Jews would read that. But chapter 3, we go into Jewish writings associated with the Talmud, the, the Mishnah, etc., that if they would believe those writings and or their scriptures, they would realize that Jesus is the Messiah. So yes, we have information for people who are Jews if they want to know more about the truth. So our challenge is not just to uh, people who profess Christ, but also for people who don't. Anyway, he, say, he says, he told the rabbis, they must not think that was a Christian religion which they saw at Rome and Italy. In the adoration of crosses, images, pictures, relics, wafers, gods of flesh and blood, the Virgin Mary, Queen of Heaven, no more than we call the religion of the Jews when they worship Balaam or Ashtaroth. So in the Old Testament, it talked about uh, the children of Israel being associated with Balaam worship and Astarte or Ashtaroth worship. It says, look, we, we don't say Jews are to that religion, so do not say real Christians 
are doing what the Romans are doing. And I find it interesting he also mentions they don't do crosses. And we in the continuing church of God do not do crosses as well. Alright, so anyway, this is again already for Dr. Chamberlain. Then he wrote another one to the governor of New England. It says, Grace, mercy, peace, and truth from God our Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you that you may abound in heavenly graces and uh, temporal comforts, that you have love for the intended purity and unspotted doctrine of New England. For Mr. Cotton was the same college university of annual Cambridge as I was. And by the way, there were two Mr. Cottons at this time. This is a different one. Uh, the other one was not Church of God. And so he talks about him. He talks about going to Cambridge, and he knew various people, Colonel Humphrey and Sir Richard Stalinstall, whatever, Sir Henry Vane. So this guy had some various connections. And he says, uh, you know, be careful. You don't uh, go for, uh, admit the liberty of sin. Uh, not all magistrates have that wisdom, so be wise and don't uh, don't fall. Obey scriptures. First uh, says, uh, whatever is against the Ten Commandments is sin, and uh, says sin no more. Cites James. So he had some contact, Dr. Chamberlain, with world leaders, even when he was not the top person in the Church of God. And I I believe this Mr. Cotton he referred to. Uh, passed the part of the true faith on to uh, people over in the uh, Western Hemisphere, which had been New England, at the, uh, called New England at the time. Now, another leader we mentioned was John James, and here's a little bit about him. On Sabbath, October 19, 1661, John James was forcibly, re forcibly removed from the pulpit. So he's preaching, and they take him away, charged with treason for having called Jesus Christ the King of England, Scotland, and Ireland. He was convicted and sentenced to death by hanging. His head was set upon Whitechapel on a pole opposite the alley of the Mill Yard Meeting House. So he had the audacity to say that Jesus is the King of the coming Kingdom of God, he went and did this, and for doing this, they uh, took off his head. By the way, we also proclaim the coming King of God, and Jesus will be King, the King of God, and we have a booklet on that as well. As far as William Saller, which is Saller, which is one of the people I mentioned before, he wrote uh, some books on the Sabbath, and uh, he had a book published in 1671 about it. And his successor, Henry uh, Sowersby, was probably succeeded by John Malden. He was a shoemaker. Malden did teach foot washing, but his uh, immediate successor, who was a co-pastor by the name of John Savage, did not. So there was some kind of a split going on in the Milliard Church at the time. So we either stopped counting leadership in the Milliard Church from either uh, Henry uh, Sowersby or maybe include John Malden. He penned some books in 1708. Uh, but uh, he did lose some truth, and so I'm not positive he still hold, he would have held the succession mantle, but perhaps he did. He used the expression Church of God as well as Church of Christ, both of which are biblical names for the church, although Church of God used more. He taught against the false Calvinistic notion that God would condemn babies. And by the way, in the, one of the books I held up before, uh, Universal Offer of Salvation, we go to that in great depth. 
And also, by the way, if you just want to read one book, the Protestant book, we go into Protestant teachings on babies and what the Bible really teaches will happen to them. And uh, uh, he taught that the resurrection was not on, Malden taught the resurrection was not on uh, Sunday, but on a day we call Saturday, and that is also what we need to continue in Church of God teach. And he died in 1715. Now, according to Brian uh, Ball, who wrote this book, Seventh-day Men, in the area of England in the 1600s, there were two basic groups of Sabbath keepers, which he called general and particular. He reported those called general believed that Jesus died for all, the doctrine of the, they believed in the doctrine of laying out of hands, avoiding unclean animals like pork. They kept Passover, uh, which uh, milliard people sometimes called uh, Lord's Supper. Um, on the 14th, they did foot washing. They taught the millennium. They anointed the sick, and they taught a soon coming kingdom of God. Those are all Church of God doctrines. That's what we, the continuing Church of God, teach as well. And this is again from the beginnings of the Sardis era, but. Paul wrote, there was another group called Particular Baptists. They were Calvinists. They believed Jesus only died for the elect. Uh, this group in time became more ecumenically Protestant. Eventually they became uh, Trinitarian as well. And there were conflicts between the Trinitarians and the uh, anti-Trinitarians. Uh, now, even though some associated with the Milliard Church called uh, a Passover Communion in the 20th century, uh, they did observe it. So here's something from the 1926 Seventh-day Baptist Manual that states, quote, The Milliard Church of London celebrates it once, but once a year at the time of Passover of the Jewish Church. Now, according to Andrew Nugent Duggar, A.N. Duggar, and C.O. Dodd, the Milliard Church and Church God's Seventh-day had essentially the same doctrines in the 1930s. This was Seventh-day, Church God's Seventh-day Salem. And uh, so anyway, they talk about that in their, their book. And here's what it says in uh, Duggar and Dodd's book. It was a pleasure for one of the authors of this book to spend some months during 1931-1932 with the Milliard Church in London. We were caused to rejoice about finding them advocating the same doctrine of the, of the great essentials in perfect harmony with the Church of God in America and throughout the world. The Milliard Church in London being the oldest Sabbath-keeping church of which we have a definite record. And at this date, 1935, their doctrine agrees with that of churches of God throughout America. Now I mention this because Seventh-day Baptists have different views than these people did. And so there's no way uh, uh, Duggar and Dodd would have said they had the same beliefs if they were also Trinitarian, because Duggar and Dodd were not Trinitarian. Now, I mentioned Thomas Lucas. He seemed to have Church of God uh, doctrines. He was called a General Baptist. So in the, by, by Byron Ball, that means he was had our kind of doctrines. Uh, he was a Sabbatarian who might have also uh, tried to teach Sunday keepers. He was also named a beneficiary from uh, Joseph David from the uh, Milliard Church when uh, Davis died in 1731. Thomas Lucas warned against those who would practice lawlessness. He had issues and about the Sabbath-keeping particular Baptist. So just because people are keeping the Sabbath doesn't mean they were part of the Church of God. And this has been a problem with a lot of church historians. Particularly if you're reading literature from the old Radio Church of God, uh, Worldwide Church of God, and some of the groups I was in, they incorrectly 
keep as ancestors some people who are particular Baptists and they shouldn't be there. Now, does I am I saying that our list is completely perfect and with with our successors? No. There are some that we're still trying to do more research on. But when we find something that essentially disqualifies somebody from being a true church God leader, we take them off of our list. So we've been updating our list. Unlike other Church of God groups, by the way, uh, who correctly say that they have some type of laying on of hand succession, and we, for all true churches of God, we agree with that, we have the most extensive list from the time of the Apostle Peter to present than of any other Church of God. No one has put it together a list anywhere near as extensively uh, as we have, at least not in the last couple of centuries. There were believed to be lists in the uh, 15th and 16th centuries that were destroyed, but so we don't have those. Um, we've been attempting to uh, remake up a list and we've been putting those together. Anyway, uh, Thomas Lucas was more officially recognized to start in 1718, uh, but he seemed to have succession mantle in the British Isles earlier, uh, earlier and, and until he died in 1743. Now, I'd like to read something from uh, 1719, a writer who's not a Sabbatarian, his name is John Ozel. He wrote about the Sabbath keepers. And I'm going to use modern spelling for this. People who go by the name of Sabbatarian make profession of expecting a reign of a thousand years. Millenarians, and we are millennialists. These Sabbatarians are so called because they would not remove the day of rest from Saturday to Sunday. Of course not, the Bible doesn't authorize that. They leave off work betimes on Friday evening and are very rigid observers of the Sabbath because the Sabbath runs from the day we now call Friday from Friday evening, sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. They administer baptism only to adult people. And that was the practice, by the way, of early Christians. And again, I, we go into that in this particular book as well as the one, uh, the beliefs of the uh, uh, original Catholic Church. They were not baptizing infants in uh, the, the second century. It was, not, it was not a Church of God practice, and we do not do that to this day. The major part of them will not eat pork nor blood. Their outward conduct is pious and Christian-like. So this non-Sabbath keeper, he was complaining about them, but he basically said these people were holding Church of God doctrines. Now, in the 1600s, there were some Sabbath-keeping groups that were established in the Americas. And what's been claimed... I'm reading this from John Kais's History of the Church of God's Seventh Day. It's evident that there were Seventh Day observers among those who landed on the American shores when they arrived on the Mayflower in 1620. Maybe. Local congregations developed in several of the New England states, in some of the eastern, southern, and even midwestern states. The earliest Sabbath keeping churches in America were composed of local congregations not formally incorporated or organized into conferences. The local groups went by various names such as Sabbatarians, Church of God, Church of Christ, the Seventh-day Baptists, and even Independents. Now, I'm going to say I'm not convinced that the, uh, the pilgrims were necessary Sabbath keepers. There's some arguments about that, but anyway. Now, I did look up about first Sabbath keepers in Canada. And according to this, the first Sabbath observers in Canada were brought, brought to Quebec against their will. The German Sabbatarians were pacifist fur traders in the Shenandoah Valley. And in March of 1757, a French priest led a 
part of Indians to attack the German Sabbatarians. Most of the German Seventh-day Baptists were killed and scalped. Only three Germans were taken as prisoners. They eventually were taken to France, and then they died. We'll get some stuff about the so-called Seventh-day Baptists in a little bit. Now, here's something from uh, the history sketch of Seventh-day Baptists of New Jersey. Sabbath keepers in the Middle Ages in the UK as a continuous body transferred to America in Rhode Island in 1664 to 1665. The earliest showed itself in Newport, Rhode Island in 1644. Well, from these groups, uh, various ones became known as Sabbatarian Anabaptists or Seventh-day Baptists. And irrespective of what they were called, these groups were very loosely affiliated. They, didn't, they were kind of pretty well separate. Uh, some kept Church of God doctrines and some were more Protestant approach, like the Newport group. Now in Johnson's Universal Cyclopedia article, Seventh-day Baptists, it says, a denomination of Christians formerly called Sabbatarians, this came out from the 1800s, they hold to the immersion of adult believers and the observance of the seventh day of the week is the Sabbath, arguing that since the institution of the Sabbath at the close of creation and its formal enunciation is part of this Sinaitic code, that's it from Mount Sinai, there's always been an unbroken chain for men who have kept the seventh day of the week as Sabbath. And that is true. And as I said, I've tried to put together a list, and I'll go into more of the list in some other sermons, but I've gone through some parts of it so far today uh, from uh, around 1616, 1617 uh, to uh, uh, the 1700s. Now, it's been claimed that the first uh, Sabbath keeper in America was Stephen Mumford. He came from missionaries uh, from London in 1664. He did believe in the Ten Commandments uh, and that there was an anti-Christian power that thought to change times and law that changed uh, the Sabbath from the seventh to the first day of the week. Now, it's pretty certain that there were Sabbath keepers prior to uh, Mumford coming in, uh, like one or more of the Cottrells, which I'll talk about in uh, a sermon one of these days, as well as practicing Jews. Now, so we don't think Stephen Mumford was the first, and we do not consider Stephen Mumford to be the Church of God. We consider him to be a Protestant. We do not uh, put our succession through him, and if in other Church of God groups they do, it means their historians, or lack thereof, have not gone to sufficient depth, because Stephen Mumford was not one of them. Uh, we do not continue Church of God trace our history through him. Well, who then seemed to hold Church of God doctrines over in uh, the Rhode Island area? Well, one would be John Maxim. He was born in Rhode Island in 1638. Sometime in the 1660s, John Maxim and a guy by the name of uh, John Crandall, they embraced the Sabbath. Although uh, the Seventh-day Baptists who reported about them weren't sure where they got it from. It might have to do with that Mr. Cotton that Dr. Chamberlain had contact with who came over from England. Now, John Crandall was an elder uh, no later than 1671. Anyway, the descendants of uh, John Maxim and John Crandall remained Sabbath keepers and ended up at, uh, for at least part-time in the ministry. Now, once he, the once zealous but then elderly John Maxim seemed to fade out of the ministry around 1715. He asked formally to leave in 1716. His son, John Maxim Jr., was born in 1666. He was ordained a deacon in 1712 and elder in 1719. And he was assisted by uh, 
elder and brother John Maxim in 1739. John Maxim was ordained evangelist and elder in 1739. We've got some more information. Now this is going to be from the Seventh-day Baptists. It says John Crandall was the third pastor and servant in 1718 and 1737. He was the son of elder John Crandall, the first minister of western Rhode Island. Forty-three were added during his pastorate. Three pastors were all the same age. 1734 to 1754, the church was without a pastor, but enjoyed the labors of elder John Maxim. Uh, now, the Seventh-day Baptists claim lots of people who are not Seventh-day Baptists. Okay, again, there were two group, two types of groups over in the British Isles, and two types of groups over in the Western Hemisphere: the Baptists and the Church of God types. And by the way, they were not called uh, Seventh-day Baptists in the 1600s or 1700s, late 1700s, they started to pick that up. We'll get to that uh, either in this or later sermon. Anyway, jo Joseph Crandall rose up after there was some type of congregational separation. And again, we seem to see a similar problem over in the uh, British Isles. There were uh, two different pastors at the same time in Milliard. One held to mostly Church of God doctrine, that was John Malden. Whether he was truthfully Church of God at that time, I don't know. And then there was another one, uh, Savage, and he didn't. Well, they seem to have a similar problems over in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Okay, it says, John, Joseph Crandall had been a deacon for some years. No minute showing how he or anyone else was appointed the uh, office. The elder John Crandall had been the son of Elder John Crandall. Excuse me, Elder Joseph Crandall had been the son of Elder John Crandall, first minister, Miss Quamacut, and was and called from this church to pastor of the New Newport Church. So, so we do have some records; they're all, not always complete. And again, in the mid 1700s, there seems to be both types of Sabbatarians in Newport Church, but it didn't stay this way. And uh, so we, our lists are a little bit different. We list from 1718 to 1737, Joseph Crandall. 1737-1748, John Maxim as a leader, followed from 1748 to 1778 for the later John Maxim. Now there, there was a relative by the name of Simon Maxim, and in September 24, 1775, Simon Ma Simeon Maxim, or Simon, Simeon Maxim, who had been li virtually licensed by the church to preach, was silenced because of lack of harmony between him and the church. So there was a difference between these Maxim people, Maxim M-A-X-S-O-N, Maxon people, and the, the Baptist. So there was something going on there. The Baptists don't want to point it out to you, but I'm trying to do so. And the Seventh-day Baptists say that John, the elder John Maxon became pastor in 1754. Many people came during his pastorate, which ended in 1778. Five years later, decline and trouble are manifest. Okay, the trouble. I've, and that's what I'm trying to tell you. There was a difference between the Church of God types and the Baptist types. And here's a quotation taken from a letter to the first Hopkinton Church. Dear brethren, we're glad you're like to let us know, like to look upon us, whether you own us as a church of fellowship with or not. So they were not all talking to each other. We know there's some been trying to make a schism in the church and separate meeting here on the Sabbath. 
You can't be sensible of the bad consequences of attending such a thing. We understand some suggested that upon the death of John Maxon, the church here dissolved. We think that's an extraordinary piece of logic, because we never thought the elder of the church was the head of it, but Jesus Christ was the only head of the church. The elder, if he knows his place, is a servant of the church. When the elder dies, or leaves society, that member of the church are destitute. Put another in his place. We would not do anything to stir up strife. We want to promote uh, unity and love. Sadly, though, they were promoting unity above through doctrine. So there were Church of God leaders uh, during this time whose names we just simply don't know. Now then, on the Baptist side, there is something called the Davis family. And in uh, January 10th, 1796, Joseph Davis applied for and received a call to improve his gifts of the work of the gospel. But uh, May 13, 1798, he was silenced until further actions of the church. Then, back, now we're in the 1800s, and November 21, 1819, license was granted to Peter Davis to go to the world to preach the gospel. Matthew uh, uh, 24, 14, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. But, uh, uh, 1822, the ordination was deferred. Then they ordained him in 1823. And then there was a, a Elder John Davis wants a letter of dismission. He left late over until the next church meeting. And in 1825, Peter Davis was charged with preaching a new doctrine which the church did not approve, which would have been the old original doctrine, by the way. In April 11, 1834, Ezekiel B., Asabi, George Davis, and Peter Davis denied the government of the church and expressed a desire for free communion. So what was going on was in the early 1800s, late 1700s, they started to adopt the term Seventh-day Baptist. And Seventh-day Baptists then started to form a, uh, a group, a, a conference, and then they were starting to put out Sabbath keepers who were not with it or they didn't want to be part of it. And then there's something else saying the North Fork Hughes Church became extinct before the formation of the Virginia Association in 1851. Well, that's what the Seventh-day Baptists say. But it looks like that it was still going on. Um, I did some more research and it says there's some stuff about various provisions of Mosaic Law that were going in there. So in other words, they were complaining about people who probably kept Passover and avoided unclean meats. It says uh, uh, this was a, they called this a grotesque failure. And this is under the leadership of Asa B. and his uh, brother Ezekiel. Both men of marked mental ability. And they were uh, fruitful of discord, however. Uh, and so there was a split in the South Fork of the Hughes River Church, which meant, by the way, it was not extinct when people said it was extinct. So, again, I'm, it's, it's tricky when you've got to go through the records of our adversaries to try to piece this together. Anyway, in their efforts to follow the mandates of Mosaic Law, the law of swine as food was placed under ban. So, in other words, it said uh, they were against eating pork. Okay, so we. They also saw that, do say that uh, Peter Davis, organizer of the South Fork Church, the one against eating pork, and baptized her nine original members, visit them from time to time, from his pastor at New Salem Church, as did other, mass, uh, uh, other ministers. He kept visiting them intermittently. And 
So basically you had people that were suffering essentially some type of persecution from Seventh-day Baptists. Here's something about uh, Asa B. He was a strong advocate of co-education, having no sympathy whatsoever the idea that was prevalent in the period that women, that the woman was amply equipped for the battle of life if she could only spell or read. He taught that woman's influence over the potent factor in shaping the body of the child and thus women needed better education. So yes, in the Church of God we were promoting better education for women and one of our arguments was you're supposed to teach your children. How can they teach your children if they don't know? Okay, we teach that also in continuing Church of God. Anyway, I put together a list, and I might modify this list. I'll hold this list up. You won't be able to read it well from there, but I'm going to read through the list of people I've got, the successors, start, starting in the New World, if you will. From 1716 to 1718, I've got John Maxim Jr. From 1718 to 1737, Joseph Crandall. 1737-1748, Joseph Maxim. 1748-1778, John Maxim. 1779-1796, Nathan Rogers. 1796-1832, Peter Davis. 1823-1850, Peter Davis, or maybe from 1830-1850, John Cottrell. And then from either 1839 or 1850 through 1871, either Asa B, who I mentioned before, or unnamed Sabbatarians, because we know these people existed. I went through all kinds of records that I could find to try to put this together. We don't include people like William Bliss at the Seventh-day Baptist, considered to be John Maxim's successor, because he wasn't Church of God, so he's not on our list. I mentioned Anabaptists toward the beginning of this message, and it should be noted in the 1500s, the Anabaptists were condemned by the Lutherans because they wouldn't support infant baptism. They taught one could reject salvation, they taught that Christians should not be soldiers. They taught that there would come an end to punishment and Gehenna, you're going to be burned up. They taught that Jesus rule his people on the earth. And they were condemned by the Lutherans. The Lutheran says of baptism, they teach it's necessary for salvation. And that children, uh, they, they, the, the Lutherans said children can be baptized, but they condemn the Anabaptists who reject the baptism of children. They condemn the Anabaptists who deny those once justified can lose salvation, lose the Holy Ghost. So yes, we teach you can fall away. The Lutherans said you could not at the time. That's sort of a Calvinist idea. In civil affairs, uh, the Anabaptist says that uh, uh, you're not supposed to uh, do things like uh, be uh, in, in the military as soldiers, etc. And they didn't like what the Anabaptist taught about uh, the return of Jesus. And he said, he called it a Jewish opinion about the resurrection of the dead and the godly will take possession of the king of the world and the ungodly everywhere will be suppressed. That was condemned by the Protestants. Now I realize you might be Protestant and say, ah, that's a doctrine you still hold. That's nice. But there's many, many doctrines that Protestants hold to that are not biblical, they're not Church of God doctrines. Uh, it should be noted that Lutherans and other Protestants considered those who relied on the Bible alone, by the way, for doctrine, quote, promoted ancient heresies. That's according to a Protestant scholar. Furthermore, Anabaptists were also denounced by other 16th century Protestant leaders, such as Jacob Werben of Beale, because they stated they got their doc some of their doctrines from the book of Revelation. The teachings of the Book of Revelation were not popular with the Protestant reformers, and they were all often condemned by them, and you can read about that here. 
In the 16th century, the Anabaptists taught the millennium, and they were condemned by the Roman Catholics for that as well. So you've got the Church of God, people of the Church of God doctrines being condemned by the Roman Catholics and by the Protestants. Why? Because those groups were not holding, uh, the Church of God groups were holding for the Bible, and the groups that were condemning them were not. And you can prove that to yourself if you're willing to do it. If you're not too lazy, or if you're up to a challenge, or if, or if you really have a love for the truth. I mentioned uh, about uh, Sola Scriptura. Let me read some from the Protestant scholar and theologian uh, Harold Brown. Dr. Brown says, Although classic theology doesn't have its own problems, historically it's always the case. The appeal to the Bible alone leads to the reemergence of ancient heresies. Well, ancient heresies would be the original faith, and that's what they're complaining about. So even though the Reformation began with the slogan, To the Sources, they wanted to get rid of tradition, despite their efforts to not be influenced by the authority of tradition. Each other major Reformation churches found itself borrowing from the past and building on the traditionalism of its own. When the Anabaptists and other radicals, they're calling Church of God people radicals, discovered scripture to be teaching things that the Lutherans found detestable, like the Sabbath avoiding unclean meat, the millennium not being in the military, as soldiers killing people, Lutherans learned the, quote, usefulness of tradition. That's terrible, but that's sadly the case. Now, in the British Isles, in, uh, John Cox, in 1689, referred to the church as the true church of God. Now, I want to read a report about the Rhode Island church from uh, Ann Duggar and C.O. Dodd. Now, he, he, they're claiming that the church of Rhode Island was founded in 1671, and Ephra... Uh, Pennsylvania in 1725, with numerous other congregations throughout the eastern states, as previously mentioned in this work. But they include Mumford, and again, we do not. During these early colonial days, congregations were first isolated because of distance and the lack of means of travel, with no roads between them. Being isolated from fellowship from one another, we find companies in one place called Church of Christ, uh, and the Church of God, and other communities, and sometimes they were just called Sabbatarian congregations. But the belief and practice was practically the same. They stood the commandments of God, the faith of Jesus, observing the true Sabbath, keeping the Lord's Supper on the 14th of the first month. That would be the Church of God once. The Seventh-day Baptist uh, types were, were going away from that and started to stop that, if they even had it ever. Another uh, tenets of faith in harmony with the true faith today. Owing to the isolation of these scattered companies, they were known by different names, which evidently gave rise to the scriptural statement relative to the Sardis period. I know your works, that you have a name, Revelation 3.1. So, Duggar and Dodd, in their book, a History of True Religion, said that these churches in the 1600s, 1700s were part of the Sardis era, and that's what we, the Continuing Church of God, teach as well. Now, I want to read something else regarding the early English Sabbath-keeping congregations. Here's something uh, reprinted from uh, Seventh-day Baptist uh, publication in 1910. Said, they said, an interesting article appeared in April 13, 1901 in the Birmingham, England Weekly Post, from which the following is an extract. At Natton, in the parish of Ash Church, the congregation meets on Saturday mornings when all their neighbors 
are about their secular occupations. The existence of this sect is known to but a few people, and rarely does a stranger make an addition to the regular congregation of a half a dozen or eight people, so it's a very small group. But certainly an interesting fact that such a body should have existed for two centuries and a half. The curious in such matters would do well to store up a record of the sect before it passes out of existence altogether. There appears to have been little attempt to propagate the faith without much effort. The number of adherents is not likely to increase. The tiny congregation is one of the oddest things in the ecclesiastical world. Not merely a gathering is, is gathering inconvenience, one would think, but, but the place of assemblage is in a rote corner in a farmyard. How could there be anything but decline under the circumstances? So yes, for at least 250 years, according to this report, there was an ineffective but small group in England. Now, there was a group called the Lollards that originally, some of them tended to keep the Sabbath in the British Isles. And they may have influenced some in the 16th and later centuries to do so. Now I want to read some things about some of the earliest Sabbath-keeping groups in the Americas. And this is from uh, William Gibson. It says, In 1705, the Church of Sabbath Keepers was organized in Piscataway, New Jersey. The first record of the old church book after the article of faith was the following statement, proving beyond all questions, these early churches retained the scriptural name Church of God. The record reads, The Church of God, keeping the commandments of God and faith of Jesus Christ, living in Piscataway, Piscataway in Hopewell, in the province of New Jersey, it wasn't a state then, be, being assembled with one accord at the house of Benjamin Martin in Piscataway on the 19th day of August, 1705, we did then, with one accord, choose our dearly beloved Edward Durham, who is faithful in the Lord, to be our elder and assistant, according to the word of God, will of God. We did send to New England to be ordained, who was ordained by the church meeting in Westerly, Rhode Island, by prayer and laying out of hands by their elder, William Gibson, the 8th of September, 1705. Now, as far as the faith of Piscataway Church goes, um, something we can read, this is from Duggar and Dodd's book, but I read it in other sources. It says, We believe that there is unto us but one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ, who is mediator between God and mankind, and that the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 6, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5, 2 Timothy 3.6, 2 Peter 1.21. Now before I go further, I probably won't read all the scripture citations next to this. I do have an article at the cogwriter.com website, cogwriter.com website, where I've got all of this information. But what I find interesting is their statement of beliefs, they have lots and lots of references to scriptures. If you go to look at the uh, statement of beliefs of the continuing Church of God, you'll find this to be the case as well for us. Anyway, number two, we believe that all scripture of the Old and New Testaments is given by inspiration. They're the word of God. And they cite a zillion scriptures on this. They are our rule of faith and practice. They're also the rule of faith and practice for us, the continuing Church of God. Three, we believe the Ten Commandments, which were written on two tables of stone by the finger of God, continue to be the rule of righteousness for all men. And they cite various passages, and mostly from the New Testament. Four, we believe the six principles recorded in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 to be the rule of faith and practice. Uh, those are uh, elementary doctrines, and we teach those, and we actually have a sermon on those. 
which you should be able to find in this channel. Five, we believe the Lord's Supper ought to be administered and received in all Christian churches. Six, we believe that all Christian churches ought to have church officers in them as elders and deacons. Seven, we believe all persons believing ought to be baptized by water, by dipping or plunging after confession is made by them of their faith in the above said things. We believe the company of sincere persons being formed in the faith and practice of the above things may truly be said to be the church of Christ. We give ourselves in the tent nine unto the Lord and one another be guided and governed by one another according to the word of God. Now the uh, Seventh-day Baptists, by the way, claim that this church is part of them, but by the way, they called themselves Church of God. They didn't use the term uh, Trinity. And um, and they stated that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, suggests they weren't now what we would call Seventh-day Baptists. And perhaps it should be mentioned the name Seventh-day Baptist was not formally adopted until um, 1818. And uh, before, although they don't believe it anymore, I want to mention that uh, in an 1851 book by Seventh-day Baptist author uh, Tamar Davis, she traced her church through the Semi-Arians, uh, and the Semi-Arians were those who would be Binitarian, not Trinitarian, in their uh, Christology, which, or view of the Godhead, which same we hold as well. Plus, the Seventh-day Baptists, according to her or other sources, used to believe in church errors, and they don't anymore. But we, in the Continuing Church of God, do. Alright, uh, I think that's enough for my introduction to Sardis. I'm going to talk more about uh, Sardis. I intend to do that in the a, in a next sermon about this, as well as to go into uh, uh, Seventh-day uh, Baptist changes. But again, the Bible talked about these seven church eras. They were to rise up. Uh, they did rise up. Uh, the beginning, I went over some of the beginnings of the Sardis era. And I find it interesting that uh, A.M. Duggar and C.O. Dodd also thought the beginnings were part of the Sardis era. And we consider that their uh, people who were closest to them remained part of Sardis. Anyway, believe what the Word of God teaches. Those in Sardis believed at least much of it, and they objected to those who did not. They went against traditions that are hold, held by other groups, and we urge you to reject those traditions and believe the Word of God over traditions of men, which the tr true Church of God has done throughout history. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.